Well, good morning. Have you ever had the cringeworthy experience of listening to someone who thinks they are profound when what they're actually saying is actually just really cliche and boring? Of course you have. You have to put up with me every Sunday. It's really hard to present a common idea in a fresh or inspiring or profound way. I encounter this every Christmas time. Christmas comes every year, and every year I have to try and think of something new and original to say about something that comes around every year. It's, it's hard to do. We have, we have friends in Ontario, and their church celebrates communion not every week like we do, but every month. When I asked him why that is, he said... Well, it's hard to think of something new every week to talk about, and I understand that. So I empathize with people who have to speak in a creative way all the time. Yesterday I was watching a basketball game with my brother Zach, and one of the broadcasters was raving about a bench player who came on the court and gave his team a shot of adrenaline, and he said, the, the broadcaster said, it's amazing to me how energetic players bring so much energy. And he was trying to communicate something profound, and it just came out so pathetic. <laughs> Energetic players bring energy. Yeah, that's, that's nothing profound there. It's very obvious, yeah. A few seconds later, his fellow broadcaster actually called him out on it and said, Did you just say energetic? That was pretty funny. But it's hard. It's hard for familiar sayings to sound fresh and profound. One of the true miracles about Jesus' ministry is how he was continually able to do this. Uh, present new truth in a, in a new way, in a profound way. And the thing is, he was able to do this using some of the most familiar passages and, and phrases in, in the sacred literature. He often just used stuff that they were super familiar with already. Because the thing about profundity, it comes in two different ways. Sometimes, these are my equations for profoundness and um, is this profound? I wasn't sure. I made it up. I don't think it's very profound. But the equation for profundity is either A, familiar truth plus new language equals unexpected profoundness. So a good example of that would be Jesus' parables. Um, it's the same truth as always, but presented in a new way using common language that the people could grasp right away and make sense of right away. That would be example A. Or sometimes it's familiar language, but a new truth leads to unexpected profoundness. So saying something they're familiar with, but in a new light. So Jesus did this, he did this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, with things like, um, you've heard not to murder. Well, anger is basically just murder in your mind. So you've heard this thing, but I'm going to take it a step further and make it this thing. So you, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm going to tell you, your enemy is your neighbor. So he took a familiar truth and presented it in a new way, and it led to profoundness. These are the equations that we see often in our passage this morning, which is Acts 1. Acts 1 is all about taking sayings and passages that are familiar and dressing them up in new ways to heighten the profound truth of the beginnings of the church. We will examine verses 9 to 26 and see how stories we know or images that we're familiar with keep popping up and what this means in the context of what we called last week the groundbreaking ceremony of the church. So let's read Acts 1 verses 9 to 26. After saying this, so after saying his last words to the disciples, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Actually, I'm going to pause there. 
This point in time must have felt like a real lull for the disciples. The scene immediately follows what we examined last week, and that's Jesus' last words to his followers. And after speaking, he ascends to heaven. The first thing I want to mention this morning is how much I find myself empathizing with those disciples. They're caught looking in the wrong place. They're caught staring up into heaven. The angelic figures, they chastise the boys, kind of wave their finger. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? He's gone. He'll come back again, but he's gone. I think even the best disciples get caught staring in the wrong direction. Some get caught staring upwards, desperate for his presence, but ignoring the world around us and, and the mission that he calls us into. Others get caught staring at their feet, entranced by the world, or with eyes drawn down by shame and fear and doubt. But those disciples with the clearest mind are the ones who look ahead. Ahead to the kingdom that's being forged in our midst by our own hands and feet and voices and brains, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sure, it's okay to catch reaffirming glimpses up in praise, or the occasional glance down in humility. But these only serve to emphasize where our eyes really should be. And that is clear, focused, and facing forward. Sometimes we need reminders just where we can find our Lord. Anyway, back to the story. It's in these opening three verses that the, the theme of familiarity that I talked about in the introduction crops up and lends power to a scene that would otherwise be easy to bypass. Basically, the high point has happened. Jesus has gone back to heaven, and now there's this lull. The disciples are just kind of standing around, not knowing what to do. But in fact, there's a lot of familiarity here. The whole thing, in fact, should be familiar, because Luke's gospel, which we spent two years studying, Luke's gospel ends with a slightly more jubilant version of this exact scene. So we basically read this already. But there are three elements here in, in what is actually a really simple story. There's three elements that recall other familiar and significant stories throughout Scripture and add a touch of profoundness to the scene. So here's the first one. Clouds. Clouds. He was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. Anybody want to guess what clouds tend to represent in Scripture? And before you say heaven, it's not heaven. Angels? Great guess. No, don't, don't be shy. Go ahead. I asked you to guess. But it's not angels. First heaven? First heaven? No. Clouds in Scripture, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, when you're caught up in a cloud, uh, that represents, and I'm going to teach you a fancy, fancy Hebrew word, it represents Shekinah. And that's a very fun word to say, so I'd encourage you to say it with me. Shekinah. Shekinah is a fantastic Hebrew word that, that means basically God's presence descending among his people. Kind of like this tumultuous divine fog. And so when God is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, what are they following? A, a cloud. And at night, fire. Fire and clouds go together often. And then once they get to Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days, and what is he completely surrounded by? A cloud. And the storm, the, the clouds were storming, and, and the storm was so tremendous, so awesome in the literal sense, that the people trembled with fear at the sight of it. They backed off from the mountain. We read about Shekinah also right at the very end of Exodus. A few years ago we studied Exodus, and Exodus ends, kind of the last half of Exodus is God saying, here's how to build the tabernacle, and then... It's like 10 chapters of that. And then there's another 10 chapters of they, they repeat everything God said and said, we did it. But it ends with this really beautiful image, uh, the dedication of the tabernacle. And then it happens again in 1 Kings, the dedication of the temple, tabernacle to temple. 
And during the dedication of each, the language is just beautiful. And what we're told is both these dwelling places of God's holy presence are filled up with a cloud, like smoke. So much so that Moses in the tabernacle can't even go in. He can't even approach it. It's so filled with the awesome glory of the Lord, which comes, descends down to his people in the form of Shekinah, this glorious cloud. In fact, the song, Lord Let Your Glory Fall, is actually about that event, and, and the lyric in it is, Your presence like a cloud upon that ancient day, the priests were overwhelmed because your glory came. More recently in salvation history, we saw a cloud of glory present during a turning point in Jesus' ministry. After climbing a mountain and being transfigured into this glorious, dazzling appearance and sharing a conversation with Moses, Shekinah alert, Moses, who experienced Shekinah, and Elijah, another Shekinah alert, Elijah, he's the guy who doesn't die. He just kind of gets swept up into heaven on this flaming chariot and, and in a whirlwind, in this, this tumultuous cloud. He's taken up to heaven while, by the way, his follower, Elisha, watches in bewilderment. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very much like Acts 1. But anyway, back to the transfiguration. Jesus is on the mountain speaking with Moses and Elijah, two people who experienced Shekinah themselves. And after all the gloriousness of, this, of what he's witnessing, Peter, of course it's Peter, it's always Peter, blurts out in an inappropriate way something foolish. But then something mysterious happens. Something mysterious but familiar happens. A cloud surrounds Peter and James and John, and they are terrified. This divine cloud, they're completely filled with fear at it. And then the cloud dissipates, and they hear a voice. Actually, the voice happens before the dissipation. Uh, I don't want to be wrong here, but they hear a voice that, that calls out saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then the cloud dissipates. So in the transfiguration, we have a Shekinah cloud, we have astonished disciples, and we have obedience to Jesus. Does that sound familiar? It sounds an awful lot like Acts 1. And that's not all. Here's another fancy Greek Bible study word. But this one's fun to say too. Say perusia. Perusia. It's a fun word, very satisfying word. And perusia is a Greek word that means the glorious end time return of Jesus to rule over creation. Yeah, it's Jesus coming back in power and in glory in the end times. It's kind of a big deal. And how does Jesus... Sorry? Did you have that one week? No, I've got to do one. I just... Thanks. Yeah, stick that in there. Perugia. It's a great word. And how does Jesus himself describe his perugia? Well, want to guess what atmospheric phenomena plays a major role? Clouds. Clouds. You got it. I knew you'd get it. Clouds. Shekinah. Um, Mark 13, 26 says this. This is Jesus speaking, but it's also Jesus quoting the book of Daniel which would be familiar to all of his hearers. Again, familiarity. Um, but this is how Jesus describes his perusia. He says, Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Which is what we sang when we sang Hosanna earlier. Coming on the clouds in great power and glory. In the next chapter of Mark, Mark 14, Jesus says exactly the same thing. He repeats himself, but this time he repeats it in front of the high council, the temple priests. And that was all the blasphemy they needed to hear to get him executed. He called himself the Son of Man, that he would come on the clouds with power. That's what led to his death. So what am I saying with all this Shekinah and Perugia and cloud business? What is this all about? Well, immediately after being proclaimed the Messiah by a disciple for the first time, 
Jesus experiences the transfiguration, the glorious high point of his ministry in Galilee. There we have a Shekinah cloud and a call to obedience. Immediately afterwards, in the Gospel of Luke, he sets off for Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem? Well, he dies, rises again, and then ascends to heaven, completing his earthly mission. Well, part one of his earthly mission, anyway. And he receives another glorious high point, ascending to heaven, even more glorious than the transfiguration. There at the ascension we have, again, a Shekinah cloud and a call to obedience. And finally, one day, during the perugia that he promised, he will return in a manner that will make the fullness of his glory plain for all to see. He will come in a raging Shekinah, the clouds of fire and power, and all will be forced to make a final decision, rebel or obey. This little scene, Jesus' farewell scene, it connects the glory of his ministry, the glory of his ascension, and the glory of his, of his return, and then demands that we examine our own obedience. All of that with the little mention of a cloud. He connects his ministry, his return to heaven, and his return back to earth one day in power and glory. And in that demands that we obey, all because of clouds. So that's the first familiar item in this little three verses, the clouds. And I thought it was so spectacular that I, I spent some extra time on it. It's not really the point of my sermon, but I just thought it was really fascinating. The last two familiar items are much simpler. How about the sudden appearance of two men in dazzling white who seem to relish making mere mortals look foolish? Does that sound familiar? How about the women in the tomb in Luke 24? They go searching for Jesus, and they find only cloths. And these angelic beings say, why are you looking amongst the dead? These angelic, they love making humans look ridiculous, don't they? Because they're angels, and they can. Um, the women, they are looking in the wrong place. And now we have these two dazzling figures coming, coming down, appearing suddenly in front of the, the apostles and saying, why are you looking in the wrong place? He's not here. He's gone. The women were the first ones to remember Jesus' promises of a resurrection. And these women encounter the angelic beings. Two of them, in fact. Why two? Because according to Jewish uh, legal procedure, you need two witnesses. That's right. You need two witnesses for, the, for what they say to be valid. And so these two, there's two because there has to be two, they are witnesses. In the tomb, there are witnesses to the fact that Jesus has rose again. But here, some 40 days later, with the disciples, they are witnesses to the fact that he will return again. They are witnesses. And because there's two of them, you can trust their testimony. He rose again, and he will return again. In both the resurrection and the ascension, God has a plan that extends beyond human understanding. They are looking in the wrong place because they don't understand. God has a plan that extends beyond human vision. In fact, as I mentioned before, human vision is usually caught looking in the wrong spot. Places like empty tombs where no dead man would remain, because there is no dead man. He is alive. Places like the clouds of glory, that we're just going to have to wait to experience for ourselves. The third touch of familiarity that lends extra force to the opening story is found in the angel's address to the men caught staring at the sky. What do the angels call them? Not disciples, even though that's what they have been. And not apostles, which is their shiny new title of authority. They don't address them as disciples or apostles. What do they call them? Men of Galilee. Men of Galilee. They're simply referred to as men of Galilee. Galilee. Sounds familiar. The angels are calling the apostles to remember their roots. 
To remember how they first came to know Jesus. Their initial zeal to follow him. They gave up everything to follow him. And all the power and grace and goodness that they saw him display over and over and over throughout Galilee. In Galilee, they first became witnesses. And they first began to understand who their Savior was. This idea of being a witness from the very beginning becomes of critical importance to the next part of the story. And the angels plant the seed of that importance in the title by which they address the disciples, Men of Galilee. Well, once you were men of Galilee, so remember those things. Remember your roots. Remember what you saw. Remember who you saw. And bear witness to those things. Tell the world about these things. Soon you will no longer be merely men of Galilee, or men of Judea, or even men of Israel. But rather you will be men and women of the kingdom, groundbreakers for the church, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. But first, before you do that, remember Galilee, and remember the Galilean who you are sacrificing your life to. And so, with that, Jesus is gone. They will not see him again. That was the last time any of the apostles would see Jesus. Nor anyone, in fact, see Jesus outside of Paul. But nobody sees Jesus on earth again. Nobody sees him. Jesus is gone. He has ascended as he deserves. He deserves to be where he is. And for a brief period of time, the Shekinah, the glorious presence of God, is gone as well. Ah, but only until Pentecost. Then he's coming back in a new form. But in the meantime, there's work to be done, a task to be accomplished. It's a simple task, but a very important one. And in that task, we again see familiar things bring weight and meaning to an otherwise simple story. That is, the choosing of a replacement for Judas the traitor. So let's read that, starting in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. In other words, a Sabbath walk, because you weren't allowed to, to journey as far on the Sabbath as you were on a regular day, according to the law. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in his ministry with us. And then in parentheses, we get a reminder of what exactly happened to Judas. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling head first there, his body split open, spilling out his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akaldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, Let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas. Um, by the way, the name Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath, which is super cool. <clears throat> Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. 
Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in his ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. It's a simple story, but in this story we see familiarity crop up to give it even deeper meaning. The first and most obvious familiar item is the roll call of the disciples. In every list of the twelve in all the Gospels and in Acts, there is a flow to the order. Probably pretty soon after Jesus was gone and the church was established, there was a pecking order seen among the disciples. And even in the Gospels, we see Jesus had an inner three, Peter, James, and John, that were his best friends. So it makes sense that they're the first three. And here, the roll call is virtually identical to Luke's Gospel account in chapter 6 of Luke. In all the Synoptic Gospels, Peter is always first, Philip is always fifth, and James, the son of Alphaeus, is always ninth. So there's like this, these divisions within the disciples, um, subdivisions, if you will. This scene, I think, establishes Peter's leadership. He's the one who takes charge right from the beginning, which makes sense. That is totally Peter's personality, but it's also kind of shocking, because it's Peter who, well, Judas had the worst betrayal, but Peter's betrayal was not too far off from Judas's. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. The difference with Peter is that he humbled himself and he responded to Jesus' act of redemption, saying, yes, I do love you. Yes, I will feed your sheep. Yes, I do love you. I will feed your sheep. You know I love you. I will feed your lambs. He says it three times, just as he denied him three times. And so Jesus reinstated Peter. Peter, this huge screw-up, is now the leader of the people who will form the church through the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing redemption story. And right from the beginning, even before the church is even formed, Peter is the leader. He is the rock upon which the church is built. Interestingly, after Acts 1, only Peter, James, and John, of all these disciples, apostles, only Peter, James, and John are ever mentioned again in Acts or in any other New Testament writing. We don't hear from the other nine guys ever again. We don't know anything about Matthias, other than, according to tradition, he became a missionary to Ethiopia. So, that's neat. There are traditions surrounding all of these guys, but there's no historical... We, just, we don't hear from them again, except for Peter, James, and John. They become background characters, amazingly enough. These 12 guys who have spent three years traveling with Jesus, who are appointed as apostles, we don't hear from them. But here, Luke recounts those familiar names in a familiar way during his roll call. Peter... Present, I'm here, right here, do you see me? Because Peter is so anxious to be seen and heard all the time. Yes, yes, Peter, we see you, calm down. John and James, sons of thunder. Here. I imagine them having deep voices because they're sons of thunder. Very good. Andrew, where's Andrew? Right, he's downstairs doing Sunday school with the kids. He's here somewhere. Um, Philip, he's here. How about Thomas? Is Thomas here? Somebody says, I doubt it. Um, Good one, we've heard the joke, we've done it. Heard that one 70 times, seven times before. So moving on, Bart and Matt, present here and here. James, son of Alpheus, are you here? Yeah, I'm here, but you always have to mention my dad's name. Can't I be my own guy? Can't I just be James? To which you respond, look, just be thankful you're not known as James the Lesser. That's an embarrassing nickname. At least you're James, son of Alpheus. Simon, are you prim? Whoa, Simon, simmer down, zealous pants. Simon the zealot, always very zealous. A simple hand in the air will suffice next time, Simon. And finally, Judas. Yes, we know, not that Judas. 
Can you imagine being a fellow disciple named Judas? That would be rough. We would never get you mixed up, though, son of James. Don't worry. We know you're not that Judas. So everyone is all here then? Well, except for one guy. And so, yeah, maybe we should do something about the fact that we're down a man. But for now, though, here's the roll call of the heroes of the early church. It's very familiar. These names are familiar to us. Their identities are familiar, some more so than others. But it's a reminder that these flawed dudes, they're heroes. They're the ones who kickstart the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does anyone else notice something? Another familiar item in verse 13? I'll read verse 13 to jog your memory. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Anything familiar about that? An upper room. Yeah, an upper room. Good job. They're meeting in an upper room, and we don't know for sure, but wouldn't it be great if it's the same upper room? The same upper room where they shared the Last Supper. Or maybe it's the same upper room where Jesus first appeared to them through that locked door on the first Easter. They were in an upper room then too. Or maybe later in Acts, they meet in the home of Mary, mother of John Mark. Maybe it's that upper room. They're all mentioned as upper rooms. There's no profound truth here. I just, it would be really fantastic if it was the same room every time. If it's that upper room every time. Makes for a very special room. Well, it signifies that they were just going off the street. They actually were up in a purposeful room that was important. Sure. If it's the same room, then yeah, they had a home base. There was a, a fallback, an alamo, if you will, when the world came at them. And that is a really beautiful thought. The next familiar item is found in verse 14, where Luke, again, goes out of his way to break custom with the misogynistic world that they live in and give credit as deserved to the faithful women who served with Jesus, giving special mention, rightfully so, to Mary, Jesus' mom. Most historians in their day would never think to mention the women, but these women are just as valuable as the men. They serve just as wholeheartedly, and they deserve just as much recognition. And so they are given that. Also mentioned are Jesus' brothers, who experience a drastic change of heart regarding their earthly brother. Um, at first they doubted him and weren't sure about him, but now they are ardent followers and disciples. All of these men in the and women in the room, totaling around 120, are representative of faithfulness while you're waiting. What do you do while you're waiting? Well, you pray, and you gather together, which is exactly what we do every Sunday morning here at Thai Christian Bible Church. We, we gather together. It's like, like Dennis said, the, the upper room is our, our solace together. In a, in a harsh and dark world, we need a place where we can be safe. And hopefully, that's this place for us. And what do the faithful do while they're waiting for the return of their Lord? Well, here's some things they do. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good list. You pray, and you encourage one another. They get together. There's dozens of other things we, we can and should and will do, but that's a pretty good first step, I think. The last portion of today's passage revels in familiarity as well, including a graphic retelling of the fate of Judas. We are familiar with what happened to him, but we're given it again in, in gruesome detail. Luke, the doctor, I'm sure, is very interested in what happened to Judas. The most obvious use of familiarity is Peter's use of passages that all of the men in the room, and many of the women, would have had memorized from childhood. In verse 20, 
It seems like he's cherry-picking verses from the Psalms when he calls for a replacement for Judas. Let his home become desolate. Let someone else take his place. There is no way that David, who wrote both those Psalms, Psalm 69, I think I have that here. Yeah, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. David wrote them both. And there's no way that when David wrote them, he was thinking of Judas. When David wrote them, he's thinking of himself. So why does Peter directly apply them to Judas? Well, because as Peter mentions, they believe that the author of the Psalms, in this case David, was inspired and influenced by the Holy Spirit. That in fact, it was the Holy Spirit doing the writing through them, anticipating times to come. The Holy Spirit would have understood that these sacred words would take on a new profound meaning after Jesus' betrayal. It's a reminder that God has had a plan all along, from as far back as David, and you can go even further still. Furthermore, both Psalms 69 and 109 are written by, by David, and the Psalms of David are specially understood to speak of a coming Messiah, a righteous sufferer like David, a king pleading for justice on his enemies like David. Peter is taking these familiar words of David and applying them to the Messiah, which was very common for Christians to do, and, and Jews who are awaiting the Messiah as well. David's plea for vengeance on his enemies becomes a prophecy of how to handle a more sinister enemy, Judas, and his traitorous betrayal of the Messiah. And so those two familiar but mundane verses are given powerful new life, leading to the election of a new apostle. How much of a throwaway line is, someone else will live in his house? Like, that's not the best line in David's in Psalm 69. There's other better lines, more profound and beautiful lines. Same as Psalm 109. There are better verses than let his own become desolate. Or, or sorry, let someone else take his place. These are, these are toss-away lines, it seems. But not to the Holy Spirit. Not to Peter. To the Holy Spirit, to Peter. These, these become mission. These become, this is what we have to do. Brothers, it says in Psalm 69 that his home will be barren. Brothers, it says in Psalm 109, someone else has to take his place. And Peter takes charge with that. And he understands that to mean that we need to find a twelfth person to fit Judas's spot, to fill Judas's spot. I, to me, that, that speaks, there, there's nothing toss away about scripture. There's no verse that's too small that it can't have significance. God's all about that. That's what his church is founded on. There's no person too small to have significance. If that's true of people, I'm sure it's true of his word as well. Something as small as no one's going to live in the traitor's house takes on sacred importance. It's familiar. It's mundane. But with the Holy Spirit, it becomes important. But not just anyone could fit that dignified office. It had to be somebody who, who was a witness even from the familiar beginnings of Jesus' ministry. His baptism under John, right up until the ascension, up until the very moment that Peter is speaking. Not just anyone could take Judas' spot. It had to be someone who fit the credentials. That comes down to two men, Joseph and Matthias. Two men that we know virtually nothing about. And yet, one goes down in history as an official apostle. Gets the stamp. This guy's an apostle. The other, not quite an apostle, but good enough to almost be an apostle. Which is better than any of us can hope for. The only difference between them was the drawing of lots. Something, again, that's very familiar to Jewish people. They actually believed that Jesus was doing the, the, the deciding in the, the drawing of lots. It wasn't, hey, we're going to pick. It was, hey, through this, Jesus will pick. 
Back in verse 2 of Acts, it says Jesus is said to have chosen his apostles, and it's the same language here. They're going to choose another apostle. Here he is actively choosing again. As Proverbs 16.33 says, and this is a familiar saying, taking on new life in a new context, we may cast the lots, but the Lord determines how they fall. This is one of the very few Proverbs that I actually have memorized, and I have it memorized in NLT. The Lord, We may toss the dice, but the Lord determines how they land. I really like that verse, and here Peter uses it again in a new, fresh way. And so, in conclusion, which makes people perk up, in conclusion, at the end of all this, what have we got? Well, we have familiarity and profundity, profoundness. But where does it leave us 2,000 years after the fact? Well, just before the appearance of the Holy Spirit, we have these faithful disciples who are reminded in a familiar way to keep facing forwards. His Shekinah glory is gone, but only for a short while. And for us, living as the church, it's back. It's back in a new and more powerful way. We don't have to look anywhere to find his presence and his glory. It's in us. It, it is us. Soon will come the Holy Spirit. And then they won't just be men of Galilee, but men and women of the kingdom, serving wholeheartedly until the Perugia comes. But in the meantime, there's work to be done. It may seem like a side note. It's a very simple task. They meet together and they pray. Or something seemingly menial, something very low-key, an obligatory job carried out with faithfulness, the job of choosing a new member of the Twelve. These are small tasks, getting together and praying, choosing another man to fill the office. But Acts 1 fills these small tasks with importance, with sacredness, with profoundness. Basic faithfulness, like prayer and obedience, like waiting and serving and suffering, those are the things that prepare us for Shekinah and for Perusia. Yes, they are familiar, like, like the stories of Acts 1 are familiar, but don't miss the profound truth hidden in the familiar. Sometimes you just need familiar, familiar language presented in new ways, or familiar ways presented in new language. Let's pray, and then let's eat. <laughs> Father, help our eyes to not just be caught looking up towards you, trying to find you, or caught down in shame or doubt or distraction. Help us to move forward. We know that your glorious cloud is in us, that your presence is in us, that we don't need to look around. We can just do the task that you set for us, Holy Spirit. Help us to know those jobs and to, to complete them well. Even small jobs, small, seemingly menial and meaningless jobs, like just getting together and praying, just getting together and, and enjoying the company of brothers and sisters, small tasks like the disciples had when they chose the twelve. But in these small tasks, Father, we trust that your glory will come and be shown. Father, thank you for the faithfulness of this church. And thank you that, Holy Spirit, you're in us to guide us to be more faithful all the time. We love you and are, are honored to be in your presence all the time. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.